Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, theoretical physicist Lisa Randall on her new book, Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs, and then Francesca Kay on her latest novel, The Long Room. Lisa Randall is one of the world's leading theoretical physicists and the Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University. She has received numerous awards and honours and is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, the American Philosophical Society, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, an honorary member of the Royal Irish Academy and an honorary fellow of the Institute of Physics. She's the author of numerous books, including Warped Passages, Unraveling the Mysteries of the Universe's Hidden Dimensions, and Knocking on Heaven's Door, How Physics and Scientific Thinking Illuminate Our Universe, which we've talked about on a previous Little Atoms. Her latest book is Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs, The Astounding Interconnectedness of the Universe. So, Lisa, welcome back to Little Atoms. It's nice Thank to you talk to you in person this time. So the book is called, as I've just said, Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs, and that's a, a speculative idea that we'll get to later on in the interview but it's much more than that as hinted at by the subtitle so tell me what what you think the book's about what what were you trying to do with this book yeah so you're right so the subtitle is the astounding interconnectedness of the universe um really was part of the root of why i wrote this book the idea you know i've been as you know we've talked about my previous books and I work on seemingly rather abstract stuff. It's not that it's abstract in the sense it doesn't exist, but it's, mm-hmm. it's removed from our everyday lives. And what I got interested in was finding all these connections between the nature of elementary particles and what we really see in the universe. And actually to sort of tell a single history where we combine together the history of the cosmos, then the history of the galaxy and the solar system, and even life, and to put that together into a bigger story. Mm-hmm. And the other aspect of what I was trying to get across, which is sort of the hidden, subtle message, is sort of how quickly things are changing today compared to the pace at which they changed in the past, so to understand the history, so to know where we are today and where we're heading and the complexity of the system. Well, I was going to talk about that later, but we may as well get straight in there. Why? What is it that's made all of those advances so fast in the, in the you know relatively short period of time. So you're talking. I mean, when you say quite quickly, we're talking like you know the 20th century, late 20th century. Basically, there's been development after development and discovery after discovery. So what changed? Well, I'm not only talking about the pace of discovery in science. I'm also talking about just the pace that we're, we're changing the planet. Um, because sure. you know, I was talking about the history of the planet and then thinking about that, and that's changed a lot, as you know, since the Industrial Revolution where we figured out ways to not just use the energy that's coming in at any given moment, but to really use the stored resources, which are not accidentally called fossil fuels. So I think that's really quite important. Um, In terms of the pace of change of scientific discovery, I think it's really hard to say, but certainly it's commensurate with technology advancing that allows us to probe scales and places that we've never done before. I mean, the scientific revolution happened relatively recently. Newton's laws were also a pretty dramatic, rapid change in Mm -hmm. the way we think of things. So I think everyone um, takes for granted what's been discovered in the past, so everything seems like all the new things. And that's one of the things I wanted to put a context in, you know, just the nature of change and how quickly it's changing. As well as 
talking about the interconnectedness of elementary particles and life and things, that obviously means that there's, in the book, there's a sort of interconnectedness of various disciplines as well. And you talk about not just theoretical physics, but geology, even biology. Mm. But specifically, I wanted to talk about some distinctions between some fields. So obviously physics, but there's astronomy and cosmology in there as well. And I wanted to talk about what the difference is between those two things. Well, so um, cosmology, I think of as sort of the evolution of the universe, but it's sort of a more, in some sense, big picture. It's sort of what's out there, what's dark matter, you know, how much there is. Astronomy is more focused on using sort of the, in some sense, microphysics we understand to look at really particular objects. You know, so some aspects of cosmology are sort of in what we'll call the linear regime where you can solve things. A lot of astronomy is sort of in the nonlinear regime where things have collapsed into objects where mm-hmm. you really have to model systems and try to understand better. So astronomy is more about, I would say, stars and really details. And it's not that cosmology isn't about details, but it's a little bit of a bigger picture. And particle physics, of course, is sort of underlying what the nature of matter is. Now, you do mention in the book that sometimes when you talk to people and say you're <laughs> a, a cosmologist, they mishear you and think you say a cosmetologist. Turns out those two things are not actually that different. Right. So that's why I mentioned it. I actually was really amused when I found out they both were related to order. And um, I think that is kind of fun that they both have a similar root. So it's not accidental the words sound the same. Before we get into the meat of the book, I just, I just wanted to talk about something else you talk about at the beginning, which is that you know, obviously, as a theoretical physicist, you tackle you know conjectures and and ideas, and people often sort of misunderstand the distinction between, I guess, questions we can answer and questions we can't answer, mm-hmm. things we can know and things we can't know. So let's talk about that distinction first of all. Before I guess we go on to talk about some things we perhaps can answer or we hope we can answer. Well, we rarely can be sure that we can't know things, but certainly with the given techniques, um, it's hard to imagine that we would know things. For example, we can't, given the lifetime of the universe given the speed of light, it's hard to imagine that you can observe beyond the horizon, the cosmic horizon. So there are things that we just probably won't know experimentally. So I like to distinguish the things that we can potentially observe from the things that we really don't think we can observe. Um, it doesn't mean we can't think about them, but at some point it's not clear where philosophy ends and where science begins. So I like to focus on the kind of science that you can actually go out and test, even in principle. And certainly one of the, the fields that um, one of your previous books about, one of your, your other mm-hmm. fields of endeavour is is the idea of parallel universes but that, that, that exist within not other universes but that universes right. that exist in different dimensions. Well, or, or at least across a dimension. Uh-huh. So that it's separated from us by another dimension but still within the realm where we could communicate with it, where the gravitational force would influence us and we would influence it. And that seems a perfect exa- example of something that you could sort of theorize, but how How would you, you know, what, what are the sort of steps you could well, take to actually... Well, one of the interesting things about it was that although you can't really go out in the other dimension, maybe stuff from the other dimension can come to us. So one of the things you can look for are particles that actually have momentum associated mm-hmm. with an additional dimension. So it isn't that completely untestable in certain cases, at least. Let's start talking about dark matter then. And actually, to begin talking about dark matter, I want to talk about not what dark matter is, but what it isn't. A couple of things that people often get it confused with. And the first one is antimatter. So dark matter and antimatter are different things. So let's perhaps talk for a little bit about what antimatter is. You know, it's funny that I just want to mention when I first wrote my book, you know, Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs, I started talking about what dark matter is. and, um, And I also do talk about what it's not. And, you know, I talk about it and I'm sure we'll talk about this not being black holes and not being dark. Mm-hmm. My editor said, why are you talking about all these other things? Um, it's confusing. And I said, no, you don't understand. So many people will confuse these. And so it's really important right up front to distinguish them. So dark matter is matter that, as far as we know, doesn't interact with light. Antimatter does interact with light. It's just the charges are opposite. So antimatter can in principle, get together with matter and annihilate into pure energy. But it really is stuff that's actually a lot like matter. It's just the charges are opposite. Whereas dark matter, as far as we know, it's really a new type of matter. It's not made up of atoms. It has nothing to do with them. And um, it just doesn't interact with light, as far as we know. So antimatter is something, it's it's not good to have around normal matter, when matter and antimatter... Well, you don't have to worry about it, because you won't have it around for very long. (laughs) If you had antimatter and matter together, um, they tend to uh, explode. But then why has that not why has that not happened? I mean, it obviously does happen, but well, why is it? Why is there anything? Why, why does anything Well, that's exist? actually one of the big questions. And mm-hmm. as you know, I have a chapter in, about the cosmological question. And one of the things I talk about is, um, you know, although it's hard to say why there's something rather than nothing, although I do actually mm-hmm. give an answer to that. But why is there matter? 
I mean, the really scientific physics question we have is why is there more matter than antimatter? And, you know, if the laws of physics were completely symmetrical, you might have thought there should be equal amounts. But if that's true, it would have annihilated away and we wouldn't be here talking about it. So at some point during the evolution of the universe, there had to have been established more matter than antimatter. And the question is, how did that happen? And then the other thing to define and then leave alone and move away from is dark energy, which is right. the other thing that people will often, often confuse with dark matter. So what's dark energy? So dark matter and dark energy are both really badly named in a sense, and that makes them sound not only like something other than what they are, but also related. Like evil as, as said, well. Yeah, and a little bit evil. I mean, I joke about that. Um, although the Dark Knight was kind of a good guy. But um, dark matter is really transparent matter, and dark energy is in some sense negative pressure. Whereas dark matter is stuff that can clumps and that would dilute as the universe expands. Dark energy is something that's uniformly distributed throughout the universe. It really is just pure energy. It's not carried by matter. And the reason we know about it is because it actually leads to an acceleration of the expansion of the universe. So it has a very different effect on cosmology than dark matter would. I'm Hannah Fry. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's talk then about what dark matter is. So, first of all, why? I was going to say who discovered it, but let's talk about why there was a need for it. Why? Why did we have to come up with the concept of dark matter? Well, if you observe the motion of galaxies and galaxy clusters, which are gravitationally bound systems of galaxies, or even stars in the Milky Way, for example you find that things move more quickly than can be accounted for by just ordinary matter that's observed. So without it, stars would fly out of the Milky Way, given the observed speeds. So we need dark matter for it all to make sense, for Mm -hmm. the gravity to um, correctly predict the motion of the stars. You know, some people like to think that maybe the laws of gravity are wrong, but really there's no evidence for that. And the stuff really does look just like some form of very weakly interacting matter, just gravitationally interacting matter. Um, And furthermore, there's really no reason that dark matter shouldn't exist. I mean, why should everything be made up of atoms Mm -hmm. or the same stuff we're made up of? If anything, the real question is, why is the amount of ordinary matter as significant a fraction of the universe as it is? It's a really interesting question. So then how much dark matter is there? Let's talk about those percentages. Well, there's five times the amount of energy in dark matter as there is in ordinary matter. And again, that's something that you can tell by looking in galaxies and galaxy clusters and measuring things, but also a measurement of the cosmic microwave background radiation. The radiation left over since the time of the Big Bang also indicates the fraction of energy carried by dark energy, dark matter, and ordinary matter. Let's just take a step back and talk about, as I said, not necessarily like who dis- you know who discovered it, but who were the people that, that came up with the concept and then the beginnings of actually theorizing it and looking for it? Well, Fritz Vicky actually in the 1930s um, actually was looking at the coma cluster, one of these gravitationally bound systems of galaxies, and noticed this stuff seemed to be moving much more quickly than could be accounted for by visible matter. I mean, I think he assumed that there was a lot more dark matter than there actually was, Mm -hmm. and a couple of other people at the time. But he actually was the one who even invented the term, although he invented the term in German, which I cannot pronounce. But it really wasn't until the 1970s that the evidence became much stronger through the work of Vera Rubin and Ken Ford, who observed the rotation of stars in the Milky Way. I mean, you've already mentioned that, I mean, it's it's sort of probably badly named calling it dark matter. But, you know, the reason for that is because light doesn't interact. Let's talk about why we can't see it. Well, we can see it because it doesn't interact with light. And that's how we see things. So we observe it because it has gravitational influence. But mm. when we say see and we think of vision, yeah. vision relies on light. And dark matter, as far as we know, is not interacting with light. So why not? Why does it not interact with light? It's just not made up of charged stuff. It's Mm -hmm. really made up of something totally different. The reason ordinary matter interacts with light is because of the charges of stuff. But if things really don't carry charge and furthermore are not made up of anything that carries charge, there's no reason for it to interact with light. Where is it? It's actually a lot of places in the universe, but around us, it's an enormous spherical halo that surrounds the galaxy. So whereas the Milky Way is sort of a plane, a disk, Um, There's an enormous spherical halo of dark matter that surrounds it. And is that the only place, or is there dark matter? I mean, everywhere. Is there dark matter in this room now? Yeah, there's. well, we are part of the galaxy, but yes, there Mm -hmm. is dark matter. In fact, probably billions of dark matter particles are passing through every second, but you don't know about them. We'll obviously talk more about this in in the second part as well, but what role it plays... Mm -hmm. In you know, in the universe, in the galaxy, what's it actually? What's it doing? Well, as I said earlier, it's kind of responsible for holding stars and given their mm-hmm. speed. But really, I think what's important is sort of its role in the history of the universe, um, because without dark matter, structures like galaxies wouldn't have formed in the lifetime of the universe. So the reason there was enough matter to dominate over radiation early enough 
that galaxies could form was because there's six times the amount of matter that mm-hmm. we see. And that was one rule. And also the fact that it doesn't interact with light is important because light could have washed out any structure, any perturbations in density that might have formed. So once the structure begins to form, then ordinary matter can come along for the ride. So really dark matter is responsible for the existence of galaxies in our universe. And we've, we've sort of established that we, you know, we can't see it in the, in the traditional sense. Let's talk about what we're doing now to, you know, to detect it, to study it. What sort of experiments are going on? So the experiments that are going on are primarily not looking for generic dark matter, but they're looking for something called WIMPs, weakly mm-hmm. interacting massive particles. And the distinctive property of WIMPs is that even though we haven't observed interactions with light yet, there could be a small interaction with ordinary matter. And if there is that small interaction with ordinary matter, I mean much bigger than gravitational, but much smaller than ordinary matter, you might give ordinary matter a small kick when dark matter passes through. So there are, for example, enormous underground detectors, which are looking for evidence that dark matter particles has passed through, given a little bit of a kick, mm-hmm. and, um, and that would be evidence for dark matter. There's also people looking for dark matter that annihilates in the sky and produces stuff we can see, or even possibly at the Large Hadron Collider. But all of these are really WIMP searches. Dark matter is more generic, then I think you're going to have to do measurements more along the lines of the kinds of things I talk about, where you uh, study its gravitational influence in greater detail. I mean, central to the dark matter and the dinosaurs idea that we're going to cover in in the second part is the idea that there, you know, there might be different types of dark That's matter. Right. And obviously, you know, we're, there's there's different types of matter. There's lots of different types of particles, and so it stands to reason that there would be lots of different. Dark matter particles as well. Yeah, that's kind of what I think. But Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's amazing because the idea hadn't really been explored until we started Mm -hmm. exploring this idea. I mean, you know, I mean, one reason, in fairness, I think is because, you know, from a scientific point of view, you might say, why would I care about a small fraction of dark matter that looks different if I haven't even found most of the dark matter or identified what it is? But, you know, I think the logic is wrong there because by that reasoning, you would also say, why study ordinary matter? Because it's only a small fraction of the energy. But as you know, there's a lot of interesting structure, Mm -hmm. in part because it's dense and condensed into um, the plane of the galaxy and in part because of the interactions. So we're suggesting maybe that dark matter is similar and also similar to ordinary matter in the sense that there is more than one type of particle. After all, if you were a dark matter person and assumed ordinary matter was just one thing, you would have been badly wrong. Just to finish off talking about dark matter before we move into the second part, I mean, at the end of the book, you you do start to talk about, you know, different ideas of dark matter, perhaps different types. I mean, what what sort of things have people sort of speculated in ways that dark matter might interact differently with ordinary matter or with us or with our... With our well, like I said, the biggest candidate where they does interact is WIMPs. Um, that's based on the idea that dark matter might have about the same mass as the Higgs boson and be stable. And what's interesting about that is if it's true, it would have just about the right amount of energy in the universe to be the dark matter. So that's one of the reasons people are hopeful about that possibility. But there are other possibilities, too, like maybe there's more dark matter than anti-dark matter. Um, right now we're looking into a possibility dark matter just started off in the universe just like ordinary matter, but then gets diluted. So there's a lot of different possibilities for what dark matter can be. Not all of them have obvious testable consequences, unfortunately. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm with Lisa Randall and we're talking about her book Dark Matter in the Dinosaurs, The Astounding Interconnectedness of the Universe. And Lisa, I want to get us to, we're going to talk about the formation of the universe and the galaxy and the solar system and then the Earth gradually and eventually the possibly significant part that dark matter played in a part of that. So let's uh, go right back to the to the beginning. And um, you look at the Big Bang in the book. That's one of those classic areas where there's lots of those questions that we talked about in the first part. People often want to know what happened before the Big Bang. Where are we now with thinking on the Big Bang? 
It's true. <laughs> uh, the Big Bang Theory has been well tested. It's really a theory for the later evolution of the universe. Uh, it's been tested by looking at the expansion of the universe. It's been tested by looking at uh, the amount of heavy nuclei that exist from primordial nuclei. And it's been tested through the cosmic microwave background radiation left over from the time of the Big Bang. So it's a pretty well-established theory. And then something else happens. Cosmic inflation is the theory. There's this delightful term in, in the book that you used, the balooniverse. Yeah, so let's, right. let's talk about that idea. Where did that idea come from? Well, the idea of cosmic inflation came from trying to solve some mysteries, really about the initial conditions for the universe, um, why things should look correlated on the sky that you wouldn't expect to be. I mean, I kind of joke that, you know, it's like people that don't read the same magazines that come from different places all came in dressed the same way. You're like, why is that? How They're not even in contact. So you have these regions of the sky that you thought weren't in contact, and yet they somehow managed to um, look the same. So mm-hmm. why is that? I mean, that was one of the big questions. There were several other questions, too. Um, so by having the universe start off really small, but then expand much more quickly than we would have thought, according to the standard Big Bang Theory, you can resolve some of those questions. The other really interesting thing is that the theory has been pretty well tested now in the sense that um, there's a lot of evidence of this explosive expansion early on that's been tested through the measurements of the cosmic microwave background radiation. So that also is extremely important, those measurements. So we do pretty much know this explosive expansion occurred. Really the question that theorists and physicists have is why did it happen? And we still don't know the answer to that. And then the next question, the next obvious question is the galaxy, our galaxy. What, what What's happened in between sort of expansion and our galaxy forming? Right. So basically, the universe starts off smooth and homogeneous and isotropic, as we say. It's kind of the same in all places and the same in all directions. But there are tiny, tiny perturbations, you know, one out of 10,000 that actually got established after cosmological inflation. So there's little differences in density. But over time, those differences in density can grow, particularly when matter starts to dominate the energy of the universe. So, you know, I joke the rich get richer and the poor get poorer because places that have a little bit more density will attract more stuff, Mm -hmm. and it will keep doing so until um, structure eventually forms when things really collapse and the other regions get less dense. Um, Structure formation is a little more complicated than that because things, for there are filaments and nodes, um, but basically that's the essential story, that these small perturbations then turn into collapsed structures. Moving on from the galaxy to our own solar system, the birth of our solar system is incredibly violent, and you spend time in the book talking about there's a chapter called meteoroids meteors and meteorites Mm -hmm. um, and then asteroids as well let's talk about where these sort of objects come from and and what role they played well stuff that hits the earth um, there's two different possibilities and one is asteroids and one is comets and they are somewhat distinct but you know asteroids stuff hits randomly all the time one of the roles um this stuff plays is you know it brings heavy elements it brings that have fallen into the center of the Earth to the surface of the Earth. A lot of gold, for example, or nickel or iron um, that we find on the surface of the Earth could come from stuff hitting from outer space. It also has played a role, at least in one case that we know about, uh, in a major mass extinction mm-hmm. when this giant object hit the Earth. It could also have played a role in helping develop life. We don't know. It could have brought amino acids, carbon, uh, water to Earth. But um, that's more controversial. Yeah, I mean, I was I was going to bring us on to comets, and and then perhaps we could talk about the you know the the role they possibly played in 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 the formation of life as well. But you've you've done that now, so let's do you know, talk about where they you know where the where the comets are, the Oort cloud, the Kuiper belt, these sort of places. Right. So um, so asteroids come from relatively close. Short period comets come from basically right beyond Neptune, something mm-hmm. called the scattered disk, which is near the Kuiper belt, and then really far away, thousands of times farther away, is stuff in something called the Oort cloud which actually hasn't been directly observed. We yeah, refer this is, its this existence thing. from the observation of long-period comets, comets mm-hmm. with period longer than 200 years, and those seem to come from something called the Oort cloud. And you've already mentioned the role that something played in a mass extinction. So let's just sort of recap what we think happened to the dinosaurs and perhaps how often these mass extinctions happen. Well, so there's, you know, in the last, in the history of complex life, um, post-Cambrian, there's been five major mass extinctions where maybe half to two-thirds at least of the stuff, species on the planet have disappeared. I mean, it's major. It really resets the conditions for life. The one that we do know or know pretty confidently was triggered by an impact was the one 66 million years ago 
which off the dinosaurs and three quarters of the species on the planet. Mm-hmm. And the evidence for that is actually quite extensive. I hadn't appreciated how great and wonderful the story is of really figuring all this out until I um, started writing this book. And, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence in the form of geological stuff. So what the first evidence that it was an impact was looking at the Scagliarossa in Italy. And they're the, and it's really amazing because they're the, the stuff that really is at, at eye level. And you could see that there was a lighter rock, a layer of clay, and then darker rock, indicating that some of the stuff that was forming those fossils in the limestone that made it white were no longer present. The layer of clay, I mean, so the big question at the time was, was the extinction rapid or, or, or slow? And so if you could figure out how long it took to deposit that clay, you would actually be able to answer that question. Walter Alvarez and his father, Luis Alvarez, had this great idea, which was, you know, most of the iridium we see on the surface of the Earth comes from outer space because the rest of it's fallen to the center of the Earth. So they wanted to measure the amount of iridium there to figure out, and they kind of imagined this cosmic hourglass that would deposit iridium. What they found instead was this dramatic spike in the amount of iridium, indicating that something very dramatic had happened. It wasn't just a smooth kind of dumping of uh, meteorite dust that happens all the time. Something very dramatic had happened. And this led them to think about an impact. And then there was a lot of further evidence that came about having to do with the nature of the rock. You could look for shock quartz. You could look for all sorts of indications that it was an impact. But then the question was, was it really this impact that triggered the extinction? And to answer that question, you really want to be able to do very accurate timing. You also want, I mean, they could also deduce how big the object should have been that knocked off everything. But then to know the answer to that, you actually had to find the crater, which is a very hard thing to do in general and also seemed unlikely because, after all, a lot of stuff falls into the ocean, so the likelihood of seeing it would be really small. Um, furthermore, people didn't know where to look because this iridium layer was all over the globe. But it turns out there were some really interesting things that um, happened, and I really enjoyed writing this chapter. You know, it turns out it landed on the continental shelf, uh, which meant that there were tsunamis, but the tsunamis weren't that extensive. So they could sort of localize where it should be, but they still hadn't really found what it was. But meanwhile, um, actually much earlier on, Pemex, the Mexican oil company, had been doing surveying, and they actually found evidence for a circular... The geologists found evidence for a circular structure and furthermore found evidence for the magnetic anomalies that would indicate that it was an impact crater. So a couple of geologists sort of believed this very strongly. And initially the data was sort of proprietary because they were looking for oil. Also, the company wasn't that interested in it because it wasn't oil. Um, But they did get permission to talk about this result at a geology conference. But it still didn't get put together right away. And it was actually a reporter, Carlos Byers, who put it together. He was talking to the people who were looking for the crater and said, you know, I think I found your guy. And so they put it together. And then once they found the crater, you can um, really see what the structures were there. You could see that the stuff was closer to it, that um, a lot of evidence, and also do timing measurement. And right now we know that that impact happened within 20,000 years of the extinction, which for an event 66 million years ago is basically the same time. So it seems very strongly probable that this was responsible for the extinction. I'm Alex Kratosky, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. That brings us nicely then to talk about what role dark matter might have played in this. So tell us what the idea is. Well, so our suggestion is that dark matter might have a component that, like ordinary matter, can radiate and form a disk. And if it forms a very thin, dense disk, then every time the solar system passes through as it orbits around the Milky Way, so it bobs up and down slightly as it orbits the Milky Way, and every time it passes through, there could be an extra little kick on the objects in the solar system. Now, for most of those things, it won't matter, but stuff in the Oort cloud, this distant cloud of objects that become long-period comets, are pretty, they're not very stably bound. So if they get kicked, they'd be more likely to come hurtling towards the Earth. So what we propose is that actually one of these objects might have been triggered as the solar system passed through a dense plane of dark matter which is the kind of dark matter we proposed. So let's just take a step back again. They said you mentioned in the first half the idea that the, you know, the galaxy is surrounded by like a halo mm-hmm. of dark matter and mm-hmm. the, the, the Milky Way galaxy is on a, a plane. Mm-hmm. So that again suggests, as we sort of mentioned towards the end of the first part, that would this type of dark matter be different? Well, that's right. So this dark matter would not be part of this halo. Um, it would be a small fraction of the dark matter that actually interacts and interacts with its own light so that it can radiate and form a dark disk. And this disk might be very thin and dense, in which case it could have the kind of impact that we describe. 
But when I say different, I mean, does that, you know, is it suggested that it would be a, a different kind of particle? That's right. It would yeah. be a particle that carries a, a different, an actual charge, a charge under what we call, or I'm calling dark light, you know, a different kind of light. Um, but it would have to be charged. Most of the dark matter would be neutral and very weakly interacting. But this kind of dark matter would be self-interacting. Because of the charges, it would interact a lot with itself, not necessarily with ordinary matter, but with itself. Let's talk about how this. How did the idea come to be then? Because obviously you're not studying what killed the dinosaurs. That's right. And um, I was working with some collaborators at Harvard, and we were actually trying to explain some data that had been observed by the Fermi satellite. Um, we knew the data was probably unreliable, and it has actually, has actually since gone away. But it would have required um, an annihilation of dark matter into ordinary matter. In fact, they saw the signal one way in photons, but they didn't see charged particles. And it was very hard to imagine a theory that could do that easily. And the process of trying to come up with a model that could explain that, we realized that it might be explained simply by the fact that more annihilations occur than you would naively predict. And the reason for that could be that dark matter is denser than you expected. How has the idea been received amongst your, you know, your colleagues? Well, I think the dark disk idea is something that's interesting. I mean, you know, astronomy people had actually thought it was ruled out, and one of the interesting things is that it's not, and we're going back and redoing the analysis. And um, one of the roles, as I said, of model building is to really give you targets to test, and so I think it's very useful in that respect. I mean, I think we have a different approach than astronomers who try to fit more of what we think is there. We're trying to say, is there room for something else? The dinosaur piece, I think people are, are skeptical, um, you know, but who cares? I mean, as long as people go out and, and do the measurement to see whether this dark disk exists, we'll know the answer. And like I said, I mean, the real role is to tell people to go test things in ways that we'll know a lot more. Um, one of the reasons people are skeptical is that the evidence for periodicity is weak, and we're pretty open about that. But one of the interesting things about having a model is that you can have statistically stronger evidence because you don't predict just any period. You predict a period consistent with what you see. How would you go about testing is the wrong word? I mean, how could you verify this? I mean, how could you, well, you, is it possible to see? It's going to be see? hard to verify the whole theory. Mm -hmm. But we do know, to some extent, what the density of the dark matter would have to be and what its thickness would be. Yeah. So if a dark disk is measured by Gaia satellite, for example, yeah. we can see whether or not it's consistent with what we suggest. Which is what I was going to come on to. So the Gaia satellite is completely separately from what you're doing out there gathering data. That's but is going to have some sort of role in, in right. this. Right. So one of the things you can do with this data is to figure out better the shape of the galaxy, what the poten gravitational potential is, and understand whether this dark matter disk is really there, and if so, what are its properties. And when is that going to happen? When will we Well, it's actually one of the great things was we were finishing the research, and it was launching that very fall. Mm -hmm. It ended up launching around December. So it's out there now, and it's a five-year mission. So we'll know the answer fairly soon, we hope. Just to finish off then, so what's... What's next for you? What have you got? Well, right now got? I have a lot of research that, yeah. that's backlogged, um, some stuff relating to this dark matter disk that types of stuff that we're talking about. But I'm also working on other theories of what dark matter can be. And some of those have interesting implications for the shapes of galaxies, for example. You know, I'm also paying attention to what's going on at the Large Hadron Collider, but we'll see what, how that pans out. So there's a lot of things to think about. Is there another book on the horizon? Um If it is, it's not clear where the horizon is located. Um, right now I'm interested in research. I've been talking to Lisa Randall. We've been talking about her book, Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs, The Astounding Interconnectedness of the Universe. It's out this week from Bodley Head. So, Lisa, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you for having me here. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com.
BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Caitlin Doty. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archives at littleadams.com. Francesca Kay's first novel, An Equal Stillness, won the Orange Award for New Writers and was nominated for the Authors Club First Novel Award and for Best First Book in the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. Her second novel, The Translation of Bones, was long-listed for the Orange Prize for Fiction and her third novel, The Long Room, we're going to be talking about today. So, Francesca, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Real pleasure. So, tell me in your words how you describe The Long Room, what it's about. Well, the Long Room is essentially the story of a rather isolated young man whose job is to listen to other people's conversations and who spends a great deal of time with his head in the clouds, in a sense, eventually finding, but in the loneliness and, and isolation that he feels, eventually drives him to a course of action which is really disastrous for him and brings about a catastrophic result. Let's talk about the setting. So this is the... It's 1981 the novel is set, so it's the the Cold War, I guess, is just sort of starting hotting up. Reagan and Thatcher are in power. Um, The IRA is still operating around London. This is the... The Falklands War is sort of on the horizon. Let's talk about that time because it's we're obviously like quite quite a distance from that now. Yes, for some of us, it, it's not exactly ancient history, but for a lot of people, it is extremely remote. It might as well be that it is a remote period of history. Um, I thought though that it does have certain resonances for us today, and I especially in the sense that that unexplained anxiety that lurked in the background all the time, which I think many of us who were who were alive then sort of remember, uh, which was to do with that sense that the world was a very dangerous place. I think we have that feeling again now. So, um, or perhaps we've never lost it, but it's very acute at the moment. So there are things about that time, that time just on the cusp of the Falkland War, when things were changing very fast in British society, which have a certain kind of, which have certain parallels with the modern world. I wouldn't want to overlabor them. The novel is partly set in that period because it just interested me uh, to go back and think about it uh, a, a very different time, a very different culture, but also particularly a time long before anybody thought about computers or personal computers or computers used for surveillance. And so the story, which is set in a sort of fictional, uh, rather shady kind of espionage setting, would not have worked if it had been a modern setting with all the kind of devices that must now exist. And not just computers in terms of their use in sort of mass surveillance now, but you you do mention early on in the book about the expense of phone calls. This is the time before mobile communications, before text messages and things where people, you know, communicate online very cheaply, like we're doing now on Skype. And so people's use of telephones was much more circumspect. Yes, indeed. I mean, it's very difficult even, I mean, I I was a young adult at the time, but to try to recover some of the feeling of that, the details of that time, is quite difficult because things that we have completely forgotten, like the way that people used to say, we can't talk now because it's costing too much or wait until only after eight o'clock could you possibly manage to call your friends. It is an extraordinarily different world, and yet it is only 35 years ago, a little bit less than that. It is extraordinary, the the rate of change. So we've set what the time of the novel is. So it's in a definite time and a definite place. 
we'll talk about what the long room is in a moment where it's sort of mainly set but there's also this feeling to me of almost like a timelessness because it's set in this bureaucratic building which is sort of redolent of things from like Kafka but then right up to like films that were around at that time in the early 80s like Brazil for instance and and Orwell and stuff I mean was that deliberate? Yes it was um, it was although I set it very specifically in that year and pretty much in the last two weeks of the year 1981 that was more that was a structural device really because I think that the the probably you know, offices hadn't really changed. They probably were much like that during the you know immediately after the war. That kind of slightly grey, slightly drab sense of of a, of a city that was kind of closing on itself during winter, and uh, where the sort of tedious details of life um, that probably hadn't changed. And yes, certainly I did have in mind the the people who have written so incredibly well about that before. And, I mean, funnily enough, we should just say that it's, it's set literally now, like a couple of weeks before Christmas, isn't it? Which is a coincidence to when we're, to when we're recording it. But this is ex- exactly when we're talking, a couple of weeks before Christmas. <laughs> yes, it is precisely that. Where, so although people, some people are, uh, the, the protagonist is worried about um, life and love, and, and, but other people are worried about whether they've bought sellotape or... Um, which is actually probably true for most of us right now. Whether they're not going to be able to get out and get Christmas presents on their lunch hour. Yes, yes. I mean, I think that the that, that of course, I find that fascinating, that the big drama of life always goes on against lots and lots of little dramas. Um, whatever that one's personal drama is, other people's drama is just as important to them at the time, and they carry on. And they're no less important in the sense, although I try, you know, I make them, I hope, slightly comic. Um, you know, anxieties about how you fit the turkey into the two small fridges and so on. But that the texture of daily life is part of the novel, I hope. Let's talk about the Institute then, which is the, the place where all this is taking place. It's right there that there's quite an anonymous name for it. I mean, you don't sort of describe it as being as belonging to any, you know, real life agency that we would know, MI five or MI six or whatever. It's just again this anonymous bureaucratic place. Yes, I, I didn't think about it in any kind of specific terms. Um wasn't particularly interested in the sort of minutia, the business of espionage or spying. I'm interested in that shadowy world, which is is a fictional world, the fictional world, like, you know, Spyland, um, most famously and probably best mapped out by Le Carre, but lots of other people too, Graham Greene or, or earlier Conrad, that sort of twilight land, which nobody quite knows what's going on, um, most memorably and, and brilliantly summed up in T.S. Eliot's phrase, which has been borrowed by many other people since, of a wilderness of mirrors. That's what interested me, and that's the perfect setting for somebody who doesn't really know where he is, a setting where he isn't sure, nobody knows what anybody's doing, nobody really knows what the truth is, and nobody knows who they can trust. It's a very isolating place. I was going to ask you about other literary influences, and obviously this is more Le Carre than it is Ian Fleming, but it is interesting, again, even though we're talking about this being set 35 years in the past, 1981, the feeling that comes from, from the novel of those sort of Le Carre novels and the Graham Greene almost means it could be set really at any time between the sort of post-war period. You know, it could be one of those, like The Third Man or something, or any of those sort of novels set in Berlin, after, you know, during the Cold War. It has that that same feeling. It's interesting to sort of think about actually how little the world changed. The world has changed so much more in the le- in the next 35 years than it did then. It felt like the world was very similar in 81 than what it would have been in like 61. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're absolutely right. The pace of change has just been absolutely extraordinarily speeded up um, in the last 30 years. So yes, it could it could have been set at any of those at any of those periods. It wasn't. I wasn't really, and of course I've read Le Carre with much admiration, but I wasn't really thinking about the good writer, great writers of spy fiction when I wrote the novel. I was just much more interested in a character under pressure, and that seemed to be a very good setting for um, that character. But I, it is probably for exactly the same reasons that so many people, so many other people have used it, that land, that spy land as I call it. 
I mean, you mentioned earlier as well that you, you're not so bothered about the sort of minutiae of the, the, the sort of spying, the equipment, the techniques, but you do go into, you do cover that, and it does seem very, very authentic. So let's perhaps talk about research you did. I know your, your earlier novels were like quite densely researched, so how, how did that go for this one? Well, I did really make it up. I mean, it just seemed too difficult to find out what might really have happened, and it's so long ago. And whatever techniques there might have been then, certainly wouldn't be the same techniques now. So I made up the whole in the, the details, which I hope sound very convincing about the length of tapes and the way that people do things and how they change their tapes around is entirely invented, entirely imaginary. And it's but it is as specific there because the shadowy spyland is also marked by certain kinds of specific detail as any setting is, and so the detail is there to make it convincing details about, say, notice boards and instructions from security and what you can't and can't do and so on. But that, you know, that's the fun of fiction, isn't it, making it all up? No, absolutely, but it, it is incredibly convincing, most definitely. Good, good. Well, I mean, that's a lovely thing to hear because I feel that that is, you know, that's halfway to, I mean, that is the best thing that any writer can be told that the reader can can believe in that world at least for a little while. I do think, in in some respects, that that sort of reliance on the, especially when it's used, like for somebody like Ian McEwan or somebody who I love, but how the the way that his novels are so well researched for ages, he's almost put out as part of the you know as part of the publicity for them when it's fiction and it doesn't matter if you make it all up. I think, I mean, you, you said my previous novels were heavily researched. Well, that's nice to think that that's how they come across, but it's not really the case. Although I did in the first novel, which is all about painting, I researched specifically techniques because I had no idea before I started how one might fresco a wall. And it was really, really interesting to learn about the actual nitty-gritty of painting techniques brushes and turpentine and all those sorts of things which one can read about. Um, so that I find that fascinating, But and I had been anyway interested in the art of that period, so I you know, read a lot more around it. But research isn't really perhaps my strongest point. I, I think it is good to check the certain facts are, are accurate, because no reader can believe the rest of the story if they can see a glaringly obviously inconsistent untruth. But much more is the product of invention than the product of assiduous research. I'm Jonathan Meads, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's spend some time talking about Stephen, then, who's the protagonist. Now, I've said we're obviously not going to give. This is a, you know, it's 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 a it's a thriller. It's it has a, you know, we don't want to give away what happens at the ending. But let's perhaps talk about Stephen, who he is, and I guess some of his background. Um, well, Stephen is is young, but a rather old, sort of rather an, a rather elderly young man. He's only twenty eight. He's clever, um, but he's a bit of a dreamer. He's the sort of person who has read a very great deal of poetry, but not really seen a very great deal of life. Um, he does have aspirations to see more of life. He has ambitions. He, crucially, he really wants to be loved. So when he is recruited into the Institute, he sees this as as an opportunity after a rather undistinguished university career and a a sort of the school kind of school background where he would have been possibly top of the form in in exams, but certainly not in 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 levels of popularity or you know being the captain of the hockey team or any of those other things. So he feels that he is ready for the kind of excitement in life that um, he feels every reason to believe he deserves. Um, but the life in the Institute is 
so boring and he is so isolated that and you know his his sort of sense of poetry and his sense of himself and so on are very much sapped by what by, by what his life is so his what goes wrong for him is his attempt to change that yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's quite funny at the beginning that contrast between the excitement he was expecting in a life of you know working in espionage and the actual mundane reality. Yes, I mean, when he has to spend his half his time having his colleagues saying who's going to make sausage rolls for the Christmas party, whereas he still you know, he he believed that he was going to be more James Bond than the, the sadder characters that you were talking about earlier. That's what he was rather hoping for, and what he got was a, a big disappointment to him. And then his mother, Coralie, is also a character in the novel and gives us a sort of a, a backstory for, for Stephen as well. So how much of, could we talk about a little bit about that? Well, Coralie, I, lo- I loved Coralie. Coralie just like, seemed to me that somebody who was um, practically dictating her own story into my ear because her voice seemed very clear. She's there partly because... She produces. She gives another dimension, another human dimension to the novel. But also through her, you can. I, I wanted to be able to convey Stephen's own past through her. You know, she, her account of the things that have happened. Quite not in a great deal of detail, but the fact that she's a, a single mother and he, you know, they lived a rather sort of straightened and possibly rather solitary life. The two of them. She's not very good at expressing her emotions, although she certainly loves him and he loves her. But neither of them has probably ever said that. And then we haven't mentioned um, the object of, of Stephen's love, really, in the description at the beginning, although it's not giving too much away because it is in, it is in the, uh, the, the blurb of the book. So Helen, who is the, the, the wife of one of the targets of the Institute, so Stephen is monitoring somebody and he, he basically falls for his wife. So tell us something about that situation. Yes, I mean, he's excited when he gets given this particular case because it looks like, and it could be a very exciting case, it looks as though he might be uh, being help, asked to help with the investigation of a, of a, of a traitor. I don't he's thrilled by that, but in fact, the whole the case itself just it produces nothing while he's listening to it, except for the fact that he hears much more of the target's wife than he hears of the target himself, and the target's wife completely captivates him. She captivates him by with her voice, by her singing, by her piano playing, and this man who is just hungry for love falls for her, although he has no idea what she looks like. Um, but of course, he invents as the novel goes on, or as the novel begins and, and as it continues, he invents her character very convincingly to himself. Um, and among the things that he is convinced of is that she's very unhappy and she is being... Is, is is trapped in a marriage that he is sure is, if not actually violent, at least you know potentially damaging to her, uh, and he feels that it is his that it will be his um, role to rescue her. He's basically crazily in love with her. And so there's two. I think there's there's two parallel ideas here. So you've got this you know, Stephen. In in quite in what's like you know quite a I think this is sort of an ironic look at quite a common trait which is this idea of of a man who feels that he needs to rescue a woman from a situation but also the other layer of that the sort of ironic layer of that is is he's like this you know sort of morally compromised guy who's who's basically only knows about it because he's spying on them so he's no hero. Yeah, well, you've exactly got it. You know, it's it's a, it's a world of full of paradoxes, isn't it? Um, you've you're, you've exactly hit it. I mean, he's no hero in a sense. Although his motives, in uh, uh, as they relate to the to the woman, are uh, pure at heart. Um, he's not a creepy stalker, but he is, of course, you know, he he, he has deceived himself um, in in a very serious way with this. But the, nonetheless. It is love, for, I mean, he is in love, and, and, and love is not always a question of being reciprocated or even being clear-sighted, is it? So he you know, he, feel, he has fallen in love, essentially with a voice, and we all know really quite how important a voice can be in terms of uh, giving a sense of what a person is like. Um, you only need to just be talking to somebody on the radio or uh, on, on a telephone call. You get a sense of that person, don't you, which may be completely different from the actual reality. And in his case, 
he's he's very easily going to fall over the 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 borderline between between just enjoying the sound of her and feeling that somehow there's some message that she conveys to him through what she sounds like. It's interesting that you say he's not a creepy stalker because although on one level that's true, I mean, he's officially sanctioned creepy stalker. He's about as creepy a stalker as you can imagine, I think. Do you think? Did you think so? I hope you didn't think he was too creepy because he's not, of course... No, not himself. And I mean, the situation that he finds himself in because he's implicitly, professionally a creepy stalker. Oh, the situation, yes, yes. Yes, of course he is, of course he is, of course he is. But I mean, that, what, he's not necessarily, in, for the purposes of the novel, examining the motivation all around. I mean, this is the job that they're all doing, and they're just doing it. We, we the readers, can make our own minds up about the amorality of it, the amorality of the whole, of the whole situation. Um, but in, in his pursuit of the woman that he's in love with, he certainly wouldn't harm her or... or in that sense, I mean, he's not a creepy stalker, Edison, of her. I think that, that that's an interesting contrast to the theme of the book, though, in that he's, his lack of awareness and also his lack of sort of concern about the amorality of the job put up against, again, as I said, his sort of like almost entitled belief that, that he should be doing something to, to sort of save her, I think. Those two things rub up against each other. Yeah. Well, I think sometimes, I mean, there are there are moments in which he wonders about the morality of his job. I mean, he becomes, she, she the wife of the target, is not the only person he is um, compelled to listen to. And the other people that he listens to are, in a sense, also becoming um, his friends. He's in love with one of them, but, the, I mean, he's not with her, but the others, he's, he's tipping over the, the edge of, the, of being professional. Um, and becoming more involved, say, in one particular old man's ill health. So there's an implicit comment there, isn't there? These people should not be being listened to. They have nothing of any interest to say. So he doesn't bother to report anything that they say. Uh, he, you know, because he knows that it's a, it's a, um, it's a pointless exercise from that point of view. But he, you know, he continues to listen to the details of their lives because he's fond of them. That's not to say that this is a, a morally uh, justifiable position, but it's the amoral world in which that novel is set. I was also reminded of obviously films like um, The Lives of Others, or even going further back, like The Conversation, another film about you know somebody who is sort of helpless to to stop something going on that they've witnessed and and are somehow you know sort of implicitly involved in. And I think it's it's sort of a, it's a great idea to set a protagonist in. It's such a fascinating sort of moral area, I think. Well, I love the way you have um, you have pointed out that sort of dichotomy much more, more it's very very clearly. And you are, of course, absolutely right. Yeah, The Lives of Others is a fantastic film. I don't know the other one. I don't think that you were mentioning. It's a fantastic film that shares only that the, the the fact that they are both listeners. Um, that the two protagonists of that doesn't it doesn't share the same premises really. Um, but it, you know, of course, um, it, of course, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful film, and it's good to you know, remember that too. When one is thinking about the whole compromised world that that um, these that these fictions cover. So, what's next? Have you got anything else? Have you already started working on something else, or? I, I'm certainly thinking about something else. It's, while while I'm enjoying very much talking about this one, it's hard to get one's head around something else. But it would be it's exciting to start a new year, a new book. I like to try and start something new on the sixth of January every year. It's just a silly kind of idea, but it's somehow it's you know, it's the end of one season and the beginning of another. It's a good time, epiphany. Start something, try to start something new. It's a good point for us to finish. So I've been talking to Francesca Kay. We've been talking about the Long Room. It's out now from Faber Books. So Francesca, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you, Neil. It was really interesting and uh, really enjoyed talking to you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denning and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365 day returns.